I need you to be my hands now, she said, clear as a bell. It was in the midst of the closest thing I've ever had to a mystical experience in my life. I need you to be my hands now. It was my long dead grandmother speaking to me, like I said, clear as a bell in the middle of the night. I was back in my childhood home, actually there, but this time I was an adult with a child of my own. My daughter was six months old, my mother was 70 years old, and my mom was dying of cancer. Nights were mine for caregiving, and on this particular night, my mother and my daughter seemed to be having a ping-pong match of need there in the middle of the night. First one would wake up with something uncomfortable and hard, and then the other, and then they would wake each other up, and it just kept going back and forth. I was doing my best, but no matter what I did or what was going on, neither of them could seem to settle down and find the comfort that they were longing for. I began to despair that I would not be able to make it through the night. How would I keep caring for both of them? It was in that despair and exhaustion that I called out to my grandmother. I asked her for her help and her strength, and she answered as clear as could be. I need you to be my hands now, she said. I need you to hold my daughter with the tenderness that you hold your own, with the tenderness that I held you. I need you to be my hands now. Now the night went on. And it wasn't necessarily any easier, but I knew with deep clarity and assurance that I was not alone, that my ancestors, that my grandmother was living through me in that moment and in all of the moments that were about to be ahead. I wrapped my ancestors around me, much as the poet Marie Howe invites us to do with her own experience, to bring that circle of dead friends near, to ask our questions, to keep them close, to wrap those who have loved us and those we have loved around us, to keep them close. I've been doing a lot of reading recently about loss and grief, and the one person I keep coming back to is the psychologist Pauline Boss. And she says that keeping deceased loved ones in your heart and mind like a sort of a psychological family can actually be rich in meaning for us and should not be branded as pathology. Even though I would say that in our culture, any talk about death, any open conversation about grief can often be branded as pathology. In our culture that likes things to be neat and clean and over if they are uncomfortable at all, talking about death is not an easy thing, and talking about loss does not come naturally to us. This country and culture of ours, it was founded on and continues to create grief that is never fully acknowledged. The grief of genocide of the Native American peoples, the grief of slavery, there is so much that lives unacknowledged in grief and loss for us, and we tend to push it away. The closest thing I think that we have to a modern-day vocabulary of grief comes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the author and researcher. You're probably familiar with the five-stage model of grief she presented in 1969. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard this. The, this model goes in linear stages, right? From denial, to anger, to bargaining, to depression, to acceptance. 
you can just move, tick, 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 right through that, right? <laughs> I know that's how it's gone for me every time. <laughs> now, while it's helpful to have some language to talk about grief and grieving, there are a couple major problems with this very prevalent theory about grief and loss. I think the first one is that it's been presented to us as if this is a model for grieving for us who are left behind, when really the research was done on those who were dying. So this five-stage model was developed as a reflection of what she saw in those as they approached death. So as someone was aware that they were going to die, they might move through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Nothing really about what happens to those of us left behind. So that's one pretty major problem, I think, with the overall acceptance of this theory around grief and loss. The second one really lies in the fact that it is so linear. It leads us to expect that we're going to move through five particular stages, maybe in a predictable amount of time, that grief is a rational, logical process, and that once we have achieved acceptance, we are all done, book closed, Thank you so much. That was a wonderful experience. I will never have it again. Grief is over for me. It sets us up. It totally sets us up to think we can mark our progress and where we are with our grief and loss. It sets us up to think that maybe we have failed at grief and grieving if we still feel sad or blue or angry or wishful that maybe things could have turned out differently. It makes us think we're doing it wrong when we still remember that person or feel sad about the hopes and expectations that have been lost. And this is where I come back to Pauline Boss again. And she says, it is paradoxical. It is absolutely paradoxical with grief that the more you want people, or yourself I would add, the more you want people or yourself to get over it, the longer it will take for them or for you to do so. The more you push this, the more you rush it, the longer it will take. Ugh, not really what I want to hear, but true in my experience. And why not, she says, why not remember? Why not have one foot in the past and one in the present? One can live that way, she says, and it may be the most honest way to do it. Now this newer research on grief and loss, it reflects this change of heart, and I find it to be much kinder and more truthful than the initial five-stage model that opened up the modern-day conversation about grief. The new research acknowledges that human beings can and do, and maybe were even made to live with grief, that grief is normal, that there are these oscillations that go up and down. The oscillations may get further apart. They may get deeper or shallower as time goes by. But grief in some way, sadness, is a presence for any of us who have loved and lost. It is part of the human experience. And now to my absolute favorite part of what she has said. If this is all I ever remember, this is it. The treatment for sadness, and sadness is what happens with loss, the treatment for sadness is human connection. More connection. I think we know this through our experiences. When we isolate ourselves, pulling away from other people or connections that we have that bring us back, that open our hearts, it is harder. 
but when we are able to open up and trust in connecting in whatever way we can, it can shift things for us. Up and down, never done, but it can shift things for us. More love, more connection, more heart opening. That is what we need when we experience grief and loss, hard as it is. Now this newer research about grief and loss has a uncanny way, I think, of matching up with what the spiritual teachers have been saying about grief and loss for generations. Go back to our wisdom story about the Buddha this morning in Kisa. And the instructions were to go to every house in the village and talk about your grief and hear about theirs. That is what will offer healing. Or back to our first reading from Judah of Halevi, written in the 11th century, in which it is acknowledged that it's a fearful thing to love what death can touch. 11th century. To love, to hope, to dream, a thing for fools this, to love what death can touch, but a human thing, a holy thing. It hurts absolutely to love what death can touch, to hope, to dream, to have things go away. It hurts whether we experience the loss through death or divorce, through addiction or mental illness, through physical illness, through the experience of somebody is physically present there with us, but they are emotionally absent, or maybe their emotional presence is there, but they are physically gone. It hurts to experience these losses whether they seem clear or complicated, and yet it is exactly this love that inevitably leads to loss that makes our life worth living. The modern-day Unitarian Universalist spiritual teacher, the Reverend Forrest Church, wrote that religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. The goal is to live in such a way that our lives will prove worth dying for. And this, he says, is where love comes into the picture. The one thing that can't be taken from us by death even is the love that we receive and that we give before we die. Love and connection are what make our lives worthwhile, even when it is painful. And the cure for that pain, for that sadness, is to lean in to more connection in whatever way we can. Now, church is, of course, one of those places for more connection, more love, more heart opening. And so can family be, and friends, pets, and plants, and nature, poetry, music, stories connect us to each other and across the generations. Colleagues, coworkers, if we're lucky, comrades, people who share our passions and convictions, there are so many ways to nurture love and connection and heart opening. So the question I want to leave us with today is this year, 2017, how will you be nurturing more connection in your life? Where will that come from? How might you open your heart even more this year? How might you lessen your sadness and grief through connection? Maybe you'll join one of our newly forming circles or small groups. Maybe you'll seek out one of the circles that's especially for folks who are experiencing grief, for those who've lost a spouse or partner, a group for those who are experiencing any kind of grief. Maybe you want mutual accountability and deepening your spiritual practice, 
Maybe you want to cultivate balance in your life in this time of resistance and increased fear. Maybe you'll do something all on your own and sit in the morning and convene a circle of your dead friends and ask them for their advice. But how will you do it? How will you reach out beyond your comfort zone into this greater possibility of deeper connection? I know that this year I will be remembering my grandmother and those words that came in the middle of the night. I need you to be my hands now. I will remember those not just for the care of my family, but for the care of this world, as our ancestors call out through each of us to help repair, to mend, to bring justice to this beautiful, broken world. They would like us to be their hands now. I'm sure of it. So whatever way you lean in to more connection, I invite you to do so, to be brave and even foolish, knowing that death can touch it all, but to risk anyway. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>